Welcome to In-Depth Studies Weekend. In-Depth Studies is the teaching ministry of Jeff Volker, which seeks to equip the believer with a theological foundation. All teaching is from the point of view of the doctrines of grace and New Covenant theology. Welcome again to another edition of the In-Depth Studies Weekend. I'm having a hard time today. Uh, I'm Paul Honeycutt, your host. Uh, I'm an elder at New Covenant Bible Fellowship in Tempe, Arizona. Joined as always by Jeff Volker, who is Director of In-Depth Studies and also an elder at New Covenant Bible Fellowship. Jeff, the last uh, couple of weeks we were looking at kind of comparing and contrasting uh, the Old Covenant versus the New, looking especially at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Today we want to really focus on the New Covenant, and we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 10. Yes, this is a... Um, this. Chapter 10 of Hebrews would be the, we would call it the sort of the climax of the book of Hebrews. But as we get into this, let's sort of step back a little bit and get the broader picture of what's going on in this letter to the Hebrews. We don't know for sure who the author was. People speculate. The early church knew who it was. We just aren't really sure. So we're not even going to speculate. There's no question it was scripture, but we're not sure about the authorship. But the, the, what was going on seems to be quite clear. There were these professed believers who were Jewish who were experiencing tremendous persecution over an extended period of time for their faith. But now they are seriously beginning to contemplate to, in order to escape the persecution, turn their back on the work of Christ on the cross called the New Covenant and go back under the Old Covenant with Israel. Go back under that. And the author of Hebrews, what he does is he says that every aspect of the Old Covenant doesn't do anything. This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't do anything. It's only a picture. Only the death of Christ on the cross actually does something. He pays for sins and transforms the lives of those for whom he saves. So with that in mind, we're going to begin really our study at the climactic point of the book of Hebrews, which is... Uh, chapter 10, and just sort of a note in passing, you know, when you ask the question, which book of the Bible speaks the most about the cross, it surprises folks that it's the book of Hebrews. And so that's why we want to focus on this, because the cross is the center of everything uh, for the believer. And we embrace our our, our theological commitment called New Covenant Theology, which is a cross-centered theology, it's all about what Jesus did on the cross. So we're going to begin in Hebrews 10, verse 1, and I'm reading from the NIV. The author says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, this is sort of like an, sort of an introduction to the subject. And he, he just reminding us, and we dealt with this last couple weeks, but this is good review. He says that the Old Covenant era, the Old Covenant, and the, of course, was given to Israel on Mount Sinai. It was a works covenant. You had to obey perfectly or God curses you. And the summary of the legal requirements of that works covenant is the ten, are the Ten Commandments. But he describes the law as, as a shadow 
of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. This is the this is a very important idea in the Bible. There's this constant comparison of the old covenant with the new covenant, and a simple way to understand that is it's a comparison between picture and fulfillment with regard to salvation. The old covenant is a is going to function as a physical picture of what Jesus was actually going to accomplish on the cross, the new covenant. And, of course, what he accomplished on the cross, he purchases a people, and he takes them to be with him into a land that never ends. And so first you have the old covenant. You had a physical people, Israel, in a physical land, Palestine. But those were only temporary. And now Jesus on the cross purchases a real people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and takes them to be with him forever in the land that does not end a new heavens and new earth. That kind of an idea. I, I always get in trouble when I ask these why questions, but they do come to mind. So the you know he says it's impossible for the blood of, of uh, bulls and goats to take away sins. These were annual reminders. What was the purpose then? If they if those sacrifices every year that the Israelites performed in the temple really did nothing. Why were they told to do it? Oh, okay, that, 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 that is a perplexing question to a lot of believers, particularly if you're reading, you're reading in um, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, particularly those books, where especially when you're given this in Leviticus, a, a sort of a grocery list of various sacrifices. And, it's, and admittedly, when you read it, it's a bit tedious, mm-hmm. the detail. You know, I've once had this, came across this book, entitled, How to Read the Boring Parts of the Bible. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you start to read the Bible through in a year routine, whatever, right, right. you know, many believers die in Deuteronomy or something. Leviticus kills them or right, something. Right. And because the, 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 the intense detail of doing the sacrifices and what's involved, you're just mentally tired reading it. And, and, the, and the question that you brought up is, what's the relevance of this? Let's get on to a story, some action. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it is absolutely true, first off, that when you read about the giving of the sacrifices in the Old Covenant era, Exodus, Leviticus, etc., they would say, if you do this particular sin, then you do this particular sacrifice. And if you do this particular sacrifice, then you are forgiven. And that's the language. And it seems, at least when you're reading that for the first time, I would walk away saying, these sacrifices really did something. They really did. But now when we come to the book of Hebrews, it says, no, they didn't. And you go, whoa, what do you mean, no, they didn't? It says they did. Kind of like read my lips, mm-hmm. no new taxes. You know? and, and so here you have the book of Hebrews, which is, a teaching passage in the New Covenant era, this side of Pentecost, is providing the rest of the story. We're stealing from Paul, Paul Harvey at this mm-hmm. point. But it's providing the rest of the story, more like the answer key of how, to, how we're to understand the old, what's really going on. Because the old, when we read it, beginning with Genesis, going through Malachi, it only gives a limited perspective. All the... But it's not till you get this side of Pentecost that he gives the rest of the story, and now we see what is going on. So now we would say, when it says in Leviticus that if you do this particular sin, you have to do this particular sacrifice, and if you do this sacrifice, you are forgiven, it means ceremonially forgiven. It's only a picture of forgiveness, or you are restored to 
ethnic Israel in good standing, but not to the God of Israel. But we would be the first to admit that's not clear if you just read Leviticus. That's not clear. It's only clear, particularly once you read, let's say, Hebrews. This is explicitly clear that, whoa, the sacrifices don't do anything. Of course, that's once again going back to the basic issue in the book of Hebrews to turn your back on Jesus in the new covenant and go back to the old covenant for forgiveness. He goes, this is impossible because those sacrifices cannot give you forgiveness for your sins, even though from a certain point of view, they seem to say that. Mm. But now, no, it's only ceremonial. It's only ceremonial. It's kind of like I'm in both you and I are, we like baseball. And, um, you know, they have these fantasy camps. We mm. live out in the, in the desert in Phoenix area where we have spring training, the Cactus League, and we enjoy that. And, but they have, uh, they have these fantasy camps where old guys with pot bellies, you know, with bodies that aren't so good. The example, Chicago Cubs. They'll, they'll give them, there'll be a Chicago Cubs fantasy camp. They'll give them uniforms, Cubs uniforms, Cubs, you know, they got bats, mitts, and play in a Cubs field. And they look like, from a certain point of view, if you just looked across their chest, says Chicago Cubs. But once you look at them, you go, this is not the Cubs. This is, these guys are not the Cubs. As soon as you watch them throw and hit and run, no, 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 no. These are a bunch of old guys in Cubs uniforms. Well, that's kind of like Israel. Mm. It's, I know that sounds kind of folksy, but it is. That's really what Israel was all about. They were in temporary, unbelieving picture of the real people of God. Yeah, we know there was a remnant of real believers always within Israel, but, the, as, but whenever there's an evaluation of Israel from Exodus onward, all the way through the rest of the Bible, they are, Israel is always viewed as unbelieving. Always, always, always. So here, it's just saying that these, uh, these sacrifices were only, now particularly it's referring to in these first four verses here of Hebrews 10, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And, of course, we remember that uh, rather vivid in um, account where on the Day of Atonement you had these two goats. You know, the high priest, he lays his hands on the one goat and he recites over the head of the goat the sins of the nation of Israel. And then they send that goat out into the desert. Of course, we can relate to that here in the Phoenix area. We would say out to the Superstition Mountains. And, of course, once you send something out there, it just is gone. And, of course, that's the idea. Your sins are taken away, never to come back and haunt haunt you again. And then there's that second goat where the high priest puts his hands on the head of that goat, recites over its head the sins of the nation of Israel again. Of course, it's all symbolic transferal of sin to the goat. And, of course, then they kill the goat and sacrifice it. Of course, all of that is both of those goats are, are needed to describe what Jesus did on the cross. He actually paid for the sins of all who are going to believe, and he satisfied the wrath of the Father, and he purchased a transformed life and all of that. But this is what he wants us to understand. So the blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible for them to take away sins. And the understanding is that the author of Hebrew assumes that his hearers were grasping is, do you really think that we as sinners before a holy God can get off the hook by just killing animals who are not made in the image of God and shedding their blood as gory as it may sound, do you think that really is sufficient for the horrific uh, 
results that your sin brings about to take care of that? And he says, no, it's impossible. God had to become man, Jesus Christ, live a perfect life, thereby qualifying to be our substitute on the cross. And only then his death could actually pay for our sins. And so that's the idea, that do not fall into the trap of thinking that you can get off the hook that easily. No, the price that was paid for to get us accepted by an absolutely holy, just God was, was huge because no human being could qualify because no human being can live a perfect life and qualify to be this lamb without blemish on the cross. So God beca- himself became man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He became man, lived that perfect life, thereby qualifying to be our substitute. It's fascinating, though, the, the imagery, the metaphorical kind of pictures that you see through the shedding of blood, the, the continuing need of sacrifice, mm-hmm. the idea that man is sinful, continually sinful, all those kinds of things. It's, it's, it is rich when you go back and you do read some of the, the Old Covenant, Old Testament language, and you see this. It does, if, you're, if you've got, again, if the veils we talked about last week, if the veil, is, veil has been removed, and you can really see with, with, with you know, spiritual eyes, you see the richness of this. But you also see, as you just mentioned, the futility of thinking that these annual repeated sacrifices over and over are going to have any real effect on our sin before a holy God. Yeah, they're only a picture right. you know, to drive, drive home a point. Now, something that you had brought up earlier that I did not address and it's probably a good time just at least to mention it, because you had brought up this issue of the righteousness right. of Christ, which the New Testament is going to uh, address over and over and over again because it's so crucial, that when we talk, when Scripture talks about uh, we get the righteousness of Christ, uh, what does that mean? Let me just sort of address that. We'll come back and deal with it in detail because it's relevant to this section of Hebrews 10. What he's talking about is that we get, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for all the sins of all who are going to believe, all those for whom the Father chose to save, the elect from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so what we get is forgiveness of sins. That is a standing of perfection, a righteousness that Christ's death on the cross purchases for us. That's what we get. There is a Another idea about that that really originates within the camp of covenant theology that says, no, the righteousness of Christ is actually Jesus in his perfect keeping of the law, which we all agree he had, he obeyed perfectly, but that perfect law keeping, that must be imputed or placed into your account for you to have true eternal life. The death of Christ on the cross in payment for your sins is not enough. Now, we're not going to, uh, uh, you know, go into that right now, but we just want to make the point, and we'll address it later, that the idea that the law-keeping of Jesus is placed into our account is a foreign idea in the New Testament. Whenever we talk in terms of uh, getting accepted, they're only referring to the death of Christ on the cross, payment for sins. So, and of course, this will come out as we walk through this, these first 18 verses of Hebrews 10, but we just want to address this in just in seed form. Mm-hmm. We'll come back to it later. 
But in verse 5, it, it, it now comes to a re- what seems like a strange thing to say. Verses 5 through 10, the next section. For Paul says, therefore, I mean, excuse me, he, the author of Hebrews, because obviously I don't know if it's Paul. But he says, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, now he's quoting from the Old Testament, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, and it is written about me in the scroll, I've come to do your will, O God. Now, this is a, quote, a quotation from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Well, in verses 8 through 10, the author of Hebrews explains what this means. He says, first he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Now, what does that mean? Well, you know, the Mosaic law required all these sacrifices. Everybody understands that. And, of course, to do that, you glorify God if you obey his word. And he requires these sacrifices. But the point he's making that is that these sacrifices were not given to save you. So, yes, they were given according to the Mosaic law, and you must do them. If you were an Israelite who lived under that Mosaic law in the Old Covenant, they were required you had to do them. But if you were doing them with the purpose of getting accepted by God, truly being saved, he's not happy with them because they're not good enough. Now you have to go to him through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Because So then verse 9 says, Then he said, Here I am. I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first, the old covenant, to establish the second, the new covenant. And by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So what he's doing, he's just saying, all those sacrifices under the Old Covenant, you know, that you find in Leviticus, for example, these are just a picture. They're, they're an illustration, a reminder. They didn't accomplish anything as far as actually getting you right with God. So just to sort of summarize, so when the Israelites did those sacrifices in, in fulfillment of the Mosaic law for their particular sins, they were, it is true, they were forgiven in the sense that they were uh, accepted back into good standing to the nation of Israel. But if you talk in terms of being accepted by the God of Israel, true salvation, no. Those sacrifices didn't do anything because... God, if you're going to base your salvation on sacrifices from the old covenant era, he's not pleased because those are not sufficient. Only the death of Christ is sufficient to actually pay for the sins of all who are going to believe. And so that is, it's a very powerful statement in the centrality of the cross and why it is, it is the essential point of Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, and, and the fact that he says in verse 10, it's through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, that idea of Lamb of God that John yes. brings up in, the, in his gospel. It's just so vivid. I, I, again, I'm, I'm a great lover of metaphor and allegory and all that kind of stuff. That's why I like all the popular music I like. But, um, but it does. It's just it's so rich in the symbolism if you can just, again, see it without that veil. Mm, which yes. is exactly, exactly what we have to do. Well, let, let's uh, con- continue on, mm-hmm. uh, beginning at verse 11, where he says, Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. 
Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You know, the the passage sort of uh, evokes sort of this tedium. You know, Mm -hmm. here we go again. And when you read it, you get that. So I understand that. But when this priest, of course, that's Jesus. Of course, the idea, the concept, of course, in this section of Hebrews is Jesus is our priest. And the idea, remember, a prophet is someone who speaks for God. Whereas a priest is someone, the prophet represents God. Whereas the priest is someone who represents the people to God. And, of course, Jesus, as our Messiah, he represents us when he goes to the cross. That is, all those whom the Father chose to save. So it says, but when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And, of course, that sitting down at Middle East and Eastern imagery that in, in the sovereign sits down, it means it's accomplished, it's done. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Of course, that's the new covenant era, and of course, that climaxes at the second coming and the ushering of the new heavens and new earth. Now, verse 14, which is really the climactic verse of chapter 10, it says, Because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And of course, this is described. This is the description of what did Jesus accomplish by his death on the cross. That is, for those for whom he died, those for whom the Father chose to save, he made perfect forever. And of course, that concept is that that's referring to your sins are forgiven. If your sins are forgiven, then you get a clean slate. If you get a clean slate, then you are by definition righteous. And if you are righteous, then God accepts you. And of course, since Jesus died and he rose from the dead, he sits at, he sits at the right hand of the Father. That means, he, it says in Romans 8, he always lives to intercede for us, meaning his, what he accomplished by his death on the cross lasts forever for whomever it is for. Well, that means that we have been made perfect forever because we have this standing with God as though we have obeyed perfectly when in reality we've just had our sins forgiven. But we get the identical standing. That is acceptance. So the only way you can be accepted by this holy God is if you're perfect. And you can be perfect by obeying the law perfectly, which is impossible, or you can have Jesus pay for all your sins. Because if he pays for all your sins, you get a standing as though you have obeyed perfectly because you get a clean record. If you get a clean record, you're righteous. If you're righteous, you're accepted. So that's really, that is the, uh, this unconditional acceptance forever that we get from the Father through the death of Jesus on the cross. That is, from my point of view, the most uh, foundational truth I have as a believer. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the thing that I cling to this unconditional acceptance, because I'm always battling with sin. I love my Lord, but I'm battling with sin till I die. I'm going to grow, make progress, but I'm always going to be battling with sin. And so this issue, this reminder of unconditional acceptance, Jesus did it all. There's nothing I can do that can add to what Jesus did. Nothing. And the theological term for that would be justification. Yes. We are justified. That is, Everything that a holy God had had against us has been satisfied. But that's different than holy, where he says, those who are being made holy. Ah, yeah, because that's the second part. So it says, because by one sacrifice he has made 
perfect forever those, same group, who are being made holy. Uh, so you not only get your sins forgiven, which is fantastic, but you also get a changed life. This is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8, that you are being transformed by the Holy Spirit and made more Christ-like. So you, so you be, when you get your salvation, you have saving faith, you become this incurable God-lover, which is the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, and, you, and the Holy Spirit now continues to motivate you. You are spirit-motivated to want to keep living for Jesus till you die. Doesn't mean you don't get caught in sin, but it does mean is that when you are caught in sin, you will not be content to stay in that sin. The Spirit of God is that hound of heaven. He He keeps driving you because as a believer, you are this incurable God lover, and you just can't shake it. And the theological term for that is sanctification. Yeah. So we get both. We do get both. We get the cross does it all. It it gets us unconditional acceptance, and it gets us a transformed life and a God-loving heart that will stay that way until we die. And this is a sacrifice that does not have to be repeated. No, it's just once and for all. Jesus does it all. And I think at that point, it's crucial that we just understand that we can never add anything to what Jesus did. And this is where, uh, when we even seek to add to what, what he did, we are undermining it, which is really the book of Galatians, but that's for another discussion. <laughs> exactly. Well, again, very good stuff, Jeff. Uh, we'll continue on uh, in Hebrews next week and uh, explore more exactly what is the new covenant, and then com- we'll go back and contrast that with the old. Uh, look forward to talking to you next week. If you have any questions about today's program, want more information, or would like to support our ministry, you can find us on the web at IDS.org or call us at 480-924-4290 or email Jeff at Jeff.Volker at IDS.org. 